Let's say I gave you two options. The first option was to watch a well-made YouTube video by a normal person. The second option was to watch a film which had been poured over for five years, editing and re-editing the script, and then acted out by some of the most talented actors in the world. Which one would you rather watch? I'm not suggesting that either of these are morally right or wrong, but I do think it's fascinating. I think this signals that within our society, there's an absolute triumph of relatability. I think one of the fundamental tensions in our society is the war between things which are intentional versus things which are relatable. We would rather have things which are relatable, even if they are less excellent, even if they are less inspiring, even if they are less elevating. So next I want to go into a piece by Rabbi Zohar Atkins. He talks about how the cancel culture phenomenon is a result of the death of reading within our society and the rise of audiovisual entertainment. Quote, ritualized cancel culture is the result of human nature, recency bias, a loss of canon, and the trouncing of literary culture by the audiovisual. In conversation with Agnes Collard, Robin Hansen makes the amazing point that human sacrifice came to a dramatic end around the same time that writing and literary culture came into being. Hansen surmises that having a scripture one can study, cite, and repeatedly turn to allows for more cultural memory than in an oral culture where you have to reenact the story over and over again. The rub is that human sacrifice occurs repeatedly when there's no record of the past sacrifice, but it stops once you can memorialize the sacrifice in writing. Then the past sacrifice is enough, and the only present obligation is to remember it. His example, borrowing from Gerard, is Jesus' self-sacrifice. The point isn't the sacrifice on its own, but the Gospels as literary records stop the need for a new sacrifice in each season. While I don't see human sacrifice returning, I think we now live in a post-literary culture in the sense that we no longer share a common set of texts. There's no canon anymore that serves as shorthand for shared language and values. Relatedly, we live in what David Perel calls the never-ending now, which means that most things most people consume have a super short shelf life. It was made in the past 24 hours, and it will stop mattering in the next. Many saw this coming when they diagnosed the postmodern age as audiovisual rather than textual. We may not get scapegoating in the same violent form that it used to take, but the need for victims to be held responsible for collective guilt and to appease some angry god has gone up as memory has gone down. The solution, then, is to double down on cultural memory enhanced by ritualized canonical study. Forgiveness is downstream of memory. There's something about reading and writing. There's something about the fact that it is a slower pace, the fact that it does take more concentration, which de-escalates the desire to make everything dramatic. If life is just TV, then things like peace, goodness, and common sense are just a really boring channel. Underneath our desire for spectacle is the triumphing of the relatable over the intentional. We don't prioritize things which are intentional, which are deliberate, which are elevating, because we don't believe that anything means anything. The reasons why we would be intentional with our own lives and with life in general take effort. They take faith. But relatability is just there whenever you want it. 
In my opinion, the reason for this change within our society is something called decision fatigue. Decision fatigue refers to the deteriorating quality of decisions made by an individual after a long session of decision making. It goes on to talk about how people like Steve Jobs would reduce what they wore down to one or two outfits and that is the only thing they would wear every single day just because it simply allowed them to remove one decision from their day. Here are some of the characteristics of decision fatigue. Behavioral attributes of decision fatigue tend to reflect an underlying state of ego depletion and may symbolize an unconscious method whereby individuals adapt their behavior to prevent further depletion, meaning you just blend in to not be torn down anymore, for your energy to not be torn down anymore. Individuals experiencing decision fatigue are more prone to avoidant behavior, such as procrastination. It's been demonstrated that decision-fatigued individuals are less willing to engage in planning and were more avoidant compared to others. Decision fatigue may also induce passive behavior such as inaction and decision avoidance. Furthermore, individuals experiencing decision fatigue may display less persistence when putting effort in decision-making and thus be prone to choosing the default option. They may also be prone to impulsive, erratic, or short-sighted behavior. Decision fatigue also may alter cognitive functioning. Some studies suggest that decision fatigue impairs cognitive abilities, especially executive functioning and reasoning abilities. In one study, they found that the more people had made frequent and deliberate choices, the less able they were to persist on a math task, regardless of how tired they were or how long they spent on the task. There is evidence to suggest that decision fatigue may also impact physiological endurance and self-control. This was demonstrated in a series of studies in which the participants shown who had made a long series of choices were less able to tolerate pain compared to others. This indicates that decision fatigue impairs physiological as well as cognitive self-control. So you see within our society a great decrease of self-control. These things do not happen on accident. Decision fatigue also reduces the ability to make trade-offs. Trade-offs, where either of two choices have both positive and negative elements, are an advanced and energy-consuming form of decision-making. A person who is mentally depleted becomes reluctant to make trade-offs and makes very poor choices. Decision fatigue can also lead people to avoid decisions entirely, a phenomenon called decision avoidance. Decision fatigue influences irrational impulse purchases as supermarkets. During a trip to the supermarket, trade-off decisions regarding prices and promotions can produce decision fatigue. Hence, by the time the shopper reaches the cash register, there is less willpower remaining to resist impulse purchases of candy and sugared items. Sweet snacks are usually featured at the cash register because many shoppers have decision fatigue by the time they get there. In a recent podcast, Cal Newport talked about this concept known as context switching. He wrote a book about multitasking and about how basically multitasking is a myth and that the human brain needs between 15 to 20 minutes to switch from one context to the other fully and that what social media and constant stimuli does to the brain is that your brain is still in the last place you visited and you're now you've clicked on five things since then so your brain is kind of in this constant um, state of never being all in one place at one time, and I think that's something that most of us feel. I don't know, I don't know about you, but I um, the reason, one of the core reasons I bought this um, non-smartphone, which I've only had a few days, and it already has been a huge blessing to my life, 
But one of the main reasons I did that was it didn't feel like my brain was ever all in one place. It felt very uh, spread out, and, and there was just a certain kind of anxiety from that. You know, because when people talk about uh, you know something they did that most people don't do, it tends to veer into snobbery. I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm saying, and, and if you're not super anxious or, or whatever, then you know, enjoy your life. <laughs> but but if you are like me in that way, if you have more anxiety than you wish you did, then perhaps part of it is due to things like context switching. There's a scripture which says, do not grow weary in doing good. And what if we trained ourselves into weariness? What if I trained myself to be weary just simply by the way I interact with my phone? What if my interaction, my relationship with my level of distraction, trains me into being weary. Habits are more powerful than intentions. Maybe you have a vice you wish you could do away with, but it just doesn't seem like you can do anything. You can't put a dent in it. Maybe you'd like to speak up at work, but you don't have the energy to. Maybe there's somewhere in life that you know you should push back, but you just have to go along because you just don't have any energy left. This conception of energy as basically a tank which is full in the morning and slowly empties out throughout the day, I think is a very valuable one. I've recently started going through Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, and I'm going to read you a beautiful piece here about what it would look like to live intentionally. Maybe the reason you don't live with more purpose is because you have no idea who you are, and I totally relate to that sentiment. A few podcasts ago, we did a segment on the temperaments, which are sort of like personality types. If you feel like, yeah, I would love to live with, a, with more direction, I would love to live with more purpose, but I don't know who I am, so I don't know how to do that, um, then, then go back and listen to that and see if there's anything about that which helps you kind of map where you might be most useful. But in a more big picture frame, this is a beautiful piece on what it looks like to live with intention. May our desire for relatability never rob us of our ability to live with intention. The human soul degrades itself when it allows its actions and impulse to be without a purpose, to be random and disconnected. Even the smallest things ought to be directed towards a goal. If at some point in your life you should come across anything that is better than justice, honesty, self-control, courage, better than a mind satisfied that it has succeeded in enabling you to act rationally, and satisfied to accept what is beyond its control. If you find anything better than that, embrace it without reservations. It must be an extraordinary thing indeed. But if nothing presents itself that is superior to the spirit that lives within, the one that has subordinated individual desires to itself, that discriminates among impressions, that has broken free of physical temptations, and subordinated itself to the gods, and looks out for human beings' welfare. If you find that there isn't anything more important or valuable than that, then don't make room for anything but it. And anything that might lead you astray, that might tempt you off the road, and leave you unable to devote yourself completely to achieving the goodness that is uniquely yours, it would be wrong for anything to stand between you and attaining goodness, as a rational being and as a citizen. Anything at all, the applause of the crowd, high office, wealth, self-indulgence, all of them might seem to be compatible with it for a while, but suddenly they control us and sweep us away. So make your choice straightforwardly once and for all, and stick to it. 
Choose what's best. Marcus Aurelius